strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, here we are. Rock on. Varun, my friend, how are you? What's up? Good. I'm so excited. This is our first episode for this year, right? Oh my gosh, it is, isn't it? (laughs) It is. Yeah, I didn't realize that, right? The last one was like last December, which we launched early January, but now we are doing our first recording this year. So very excited. Season three, is that what we're calling it? Unofficial, official season three. So yay. Excellent, excellent. So are you ready for our guest today? I am. Who do we have? So today's guest we have is a technology executive with 15 years of experience building software. He's the winner of Grand Rapids Business Journal 40 Under 40 Honor. He's the winner of the Inc. 5000 Award. He's a guest speaker at Western Michigan University. He's the president and CEO at Spark Business Works, Bob Armbrister. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Varun. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So we're going to start off this episode with our myth-busting question, as we do most episodes. What is some kind of myth that you would like to bust, some sort of misconception that you'd like to smash, or bogus strategy that you'd like to set the record straight on? What do you got? What do you want to clear up? Yeah, I'd say my myth is, you know, that that SaaS is going to put, you know, agencies out of business or that, that SaaS is SaaS products are going to be the, the end all be all of the, of the future, or, you know, these no code platforms, um, you know, the myth, you know, that I, I believe heavily and, and have evidence of is, is that, uh, you know, custom software is, uh, is going to be around for a long time. It's going to be needed. And, uh, you know, it, it is most of the time, the biggest dif- differentiator for most companies. So you're saying that software is the way to go over building a SaaS business? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah. So my my myth, which, you know, I, I doubled down on five years ago was really, you know, instead of building another SaaS platform um, to, you know, build a service agency uh, to be able to, to be nimble and adapt and, and, and serve uh, many different types of companies and that was kind of the myth. Uh, you know, a lot of people said, no, that the future SaaS, you got to build a SaaS platform is the only way to scale. And so that's, that's the myth that, that I'd like to bust. Yeah, you can scale us. a service company. It's possible. Sure. So tell, tell us more about your um, experience with the SaaS products, because I imagine you have built some SaaS platforms uh, in your career, or you were always a service industry. How, why did you come up with that? Like, why do you think, why do you say that SaaS platforms are not the future? Yeah. So, I mean, from, from my perspective, so I've had, you know, several different startups SaaS based and, you know, early on building SaaS products, um, you know, just the uh, over time, as you start to get adoption, you you begin to slowly paint yourself into a corner of of not being able to change and adapt. And so, you know, depending on you know what what your long term um, goals are and what your exit strategy is, um, you know, what I saw in my early SaaS platforms was, you know, once once we launched, we lost a little bit of flexibility, and then as you start to get more users, you lose a little bit more flexibility. And then, you know, over time, you know, you're, you're constantly running the, the race of, of churn and, and refilling in churned users and, and then, you know, having price constraints. And so your pricing was typically going down. So, yeah, it, it just created a whole new, you know, array of, of challenges. And then after having several that, that didn't do well, I realized that the, the party that did the best in those situations was actually the, the developers, right? And, and the, the software architects and stuff. So, so I went to, to service at that point for a little while and kind of ran a small agency, went back into SaaS, exited one, 
still hold on to a couple and then went ahead and started spark which was a you know service based software agency that that can you know spread multiple industries and so you know, I've, I've seen both sides um, and, you know, depending, like I said, on your exit and, and what makes you happy and what success looks like, you know, they're, they're for different types of people. But, uh, you know, I, I think the myth that, that I love at least is, is the service side and, and the variety and the different problems that, that you get to succeed and, and tackle. And you don't have to make sure that, that your idea is going to be the winner uh, if you're the one uh, servicing the entrepreneurs. So. Absolutely. I, I think I can relate to that um, to a very extent because we also, I had a, some something similar background. We started our own product, a SaaS product, which did not, as, as compared to you, we did not succeed. We never sold. It was like totally um, waste of time and money. And then we moved into service. But I think the argument that you, you uh, mentioned about um, bringing the cost down and there will always be, you know, competition um, and someone will push you down. Is that not, does that not hold true for the service industry as well? Do you not feel that pressure from the competition and about the pricing about in the global market now? Yeah. Uh, so that's how do you do that? <laughs> so that's a great question. Um, I think that the challenge or, or the reason there is that the relationship with the client, right? So on my SaaS platforms, we'd have hundreds of thousands of users, millions of users. We didn't have, you know, we had relationships with probably a handful, right, of power users. Whereas in the service company, right, at, at Spark right now, I think we're at 125 or 120 clients, right? But we know every single one of them, right? We've had, you know, meals with most we visited most in person um and there's a different thing there right it, it's more of a lifetime value uh so you don't have the churn that you do when you're trying to you know if you if you're churning fifty thousand customers a month and you have to replace them and you know they're just they're just numbers where um uh, you know what, what we were able to do with spark um which got us the inc 5000 was we were able to grow, you know, 400% over the course of a couple of years. And it was all through referrals. There was no like growth hacking or anything like that. It was human beings recommending a company to other humans, right? Uh, you know, customers recommending, you know, a service-based business to other customers that they think would add value. And I think, uh, you know, that's just a completely different mindset of, of SaaS and scaling and, uh, you know, the, the different, methodologies that, that both have but it's like the difference between a client and a customer you know there's a lot of agencies versus your tech platforms that'll use customer and as they move from customer into that client status there's a perceived value that goes along with how you engage with them the support level you engage with them and I think it's a it's a, as I'm listening to you chat through this it's an important distinction in terms of how you think about who you're servicing um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Like if you think about when you have a SaaS business and you know, the biggest thing there is churn, right? I mean, you're constantly trying to figure out churn, why people are leaving, what aren't you doing right, what features do you need? You know, you're trying to guess. I mean, you can get some you can get some feedback from clients or, or customers, but you're basically, you know, a little bit in the dark. Whereas in service, like when there's cases that we're not doing a good job, our client will tell you, right? They'll tell you what you need to do. <laughs> hey, you know, you have a relationship. Okay, that didn't go well. All right, we're going to make a change. We're going to do something different. Um, it's just a way different uh, type of business, I think. And I think the one that that has the most value for longevity, if you're trying to build something that's going to last, um, it's through those relationships that'll do it. For context, you know, you mentioned as you were describing the two differences here from an exit plan perspective, because not everybody has the same, you know, one thing we've learned from this podcast is not everybody has the same exit plan or the same strategy in terms of what growth looks like. Can you talk a little bit about, you've got some interesting things. There you go. I'll tease it for you. You've got some interesting things that you've done, you know, flipping between that client side and that, that, that uh, agency side, you know, when, when you think about your growth for your service-based companies, what were your exit plans there? And how do you feel like that shaped some of these decisions? Yeah. So that's a great, that's a great point. You know, I've read tons of different books and, uh, 
you know, talked to a lot of different people about, you know, when you're building something, you shouldn't be building it to sell it. Right. Um, and, you know, you can see where, where that can get you short sighted. And, you know, so at spark, we've always been building for the long haul, asking employees to, to help build something they're proud of, right. Without some type of, Hey, we're trying to do some type of growth hacking thing so we can get to this certain multiple so we can exit. You know, it's really hard to keep people engaged in that kind of environment. Um, you know, and, and we've acquired agencies over, over the course of, of time as well, uh, because you get kind of burned out. If it stays at a certain size, um, you know, we've seen, you know, where, where there's a lot of agencies that kind of get to a certain spot and, you know, they haven't maybe leveled up past a certain uh, group of, of clients. And that, that can be, you know, just as difficult as, as uh, running, you know, a SaaS company that, that is on the edge. So obviously starting with the exit and if the, if the exit plan is to, is to sell and, and become, you know, super, you know, rich one day, then, you know, I think it changes everything versus trying to build something that's actually going to serve your, your clients and your employees and build something you're proud of. It's a long-winded answer. So I don't know if I just went all the way around. Well, I mean, it's, it's something we haven't talked about you know, you have this unique advantage that you're bringing to the conversation around flipping between both sides. You know, I, I think we've all done that to some extent too. You've, you've, you've been on being a tech entrepreneur, being an agency owner, you know, client side versus agency side. There's a lot of unique perspective that you bring into your business and making your business decisions in terms of what shapes some of those decisions, you know, in our prep call, for example, I just, there's an interesting note that I wrote down. And as you were talking, I was thinking about it, you know, it says entrepreneurs get it like, get it right one in a million. And I think, you know, we're stating the obvious here a little bit, but the idea of building a technology and getting user feedback is hard to the scale that you need to be able to affect your business versus from an agency perspective, people are coming to you literally saying, here's my problem that I need you to solve by building this thing. And I'm going to tell you if it's wrong, but I'm also going to tell you if you nailed it. So it's a different communication style in terms of how we go about building the business. Whereas the tech is a little bit of an interesting animal because you don't always know unless you spent the funding up front to figure it out. And even then COVID hits and changes everything or something right. else happens and changes everything. Do you feel like that's any, you guys, I guess Varun, I'd ask you the same question as being an, an entrepreneur here too. Like, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Am I a crazy person here? No, that's, that's absolutely right. And plus on top of that, you get paid, right? You get paid no matter what, if the, um, if these, the you know technology product that you have built it's going down or up i mean the entrepreneur is going to you know the business owner or the startup founder is going to keep paying you because they need to keep their service running so um, i totally understand from that perspective and agree with you it goes to the second comment that i think we talked about which is developers are winning <laughs> I think that's, you know, not to quote you in your own interview here, but there's something to that, you know, any, any thoughts on that one? How do you see them winning? I mean, it's just like, you know, the, the people that were selling stuff, you know, tools to the, the gold miners, right. I mean, they didn't have to, you know, they, they weren't betting on the gold miners. They were, they were selling them supplies. Right. So, you know, I think especially now, I mean, you know, agencies are, are basically selling right to the, the gold miners. Um, you know, we do a lot of, of different projects for customers. I think the more experience that you have too, um, the more value you can add to a customer, the more, the more failures that we've seen in the past, you know, allows us to kind of help customers not make the same mistakes um, that we, that we see others. But nowadays it's becoming way less costly and way easier to vet some of these ideas and through, you know, prototyping and, you know, different types of, of user um, experience type tests and things we can do to really make sure that their ideas are going to work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, it can be a lot less riskier. Uh, you don't have to make sure your idea is going to be the, the champion, like you said, one in a million. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, do you have any, how do you guys test out some of those ideas? Let's get into the nitty gritty with that. You know, everyone's always looking, there's 
traditional methods, but I would love to hear kind of what you guys have done and what's worked and what maybe has blown up in your face. <laughs> Not to yeah. put you on the spot, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. So yeah, mo- almost all of our engagements will start with uh, a discovery period. Um, and if a client doesn't doesn't want to do a discovery and just wants to start building, we will not do work for them. Um, and in that discovery, it's really it's vetting out um, not only technical feasibility, um, but understanding the stakeholders involved. And so where we've seen people make mistakes in the past is where, you know, you you make all these decisions in a room and then you you build for several months, and then you roll something out. Um, and so we will force our clients to do um, if they want to work with us is we'll make sure that those key stakeholders are actually involved in the discovery phase and understanding their needs. Uh, Far too many times early on, you know, would we build stuff and then roll it out into the field and be like, are you kidding me? Like these, you know, this user doesn't have access to, you know, internet and we've just built them a mobile app. I know that's, that's a, a dumb example, but um, you know, we've, we've done that before. We had a, a healthcare client that paid us to build a, a app to help them do like field assessments and checklists and, and kind of safety procedures. And then they realized that, you know, in the basement of a hospital, they had no Wi-Fi. <laughs> and they're like, doesn't this have offline mode? We're like, oh, you know, that's when you, you know, those are the early stages. And now, you know, we do these assessments where it's like, okay, let's get that inspector in the room. Let's talk about their needs as we put together their kind of um, their, their prototype or their architecture. So obviously, so yeah, user stakeholder mapping, prototyping, um, proof of concepts, right? Technical proof of concepts. And uh, that's, that's becoming easier and faster to do than ever before. Um, so yeah, those are, you know, the obvious things that hopefully all agencies are doing, but uh, making clients do it, I think is, is the differentiator, not letting a client bully you into just starting, but saying, no, we will not work with you unless just knowing that they need to do it. Yeah. I I think, um, so that example of um, running an app with no Wi-Fi, doing, figuring that out in the discovery phase is kind of a very common, I think, problem that we all might have faced at some point because not everything everything could be figured out you know by just understanding or listening to the problem that client bring to the table so discovery is absolutely important but at the same time the person who is doing that discovery that also plays a huge role Um, and i've seen i've heard from every agency owner that we do paid discovery we want to get you know understand the client before we do anything with them that's all good that has to be done but then i think it is more important to realize and understand uh who is the person who what experience that person has who is doing the discovery um so how how is your team set up how do you identify that person how do you assign this role to a person who how would you trust somebody that he would be right asking the right question because somebody with strong experience may just ask in the first place like is this app going to run on an offline mode or an online mode you know right so how how do you do that in your firm how is your company set up yeah it's a great question so um in most cases we'll have a a project director uh so somebody uh, typically with a business degree, um, be part of that. Uh, we also make sure that we have one of our UX designers, uh, UI UX designers to be able to be in there and truly understand the user, ask the right questions, um, you know, do a diff- do a few different types of plays to understand and kind of smoke out some of the, the details, right? So we have all sorts of, we have a playbook of different things we can pull into a into a meeting with a client, uh, the five whys. I mean, there's all sorts of, of things that, that they'll do. Um, and then we'll have a senior developer as well from, a, from an architecture standpoint. So you're typically you're bringing in a high, high level project director, a, a senior developer, as well as a designer at that stage um, to understand and, and figure those things out. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very that that's key to success for the discovery to bringing in the right team at that point. Because some people I've heard I've seen that they will just put the business analyst, you know, a person who, you know, without bringing in the 
the UX architect or a senior designer or a developer and discovery is basically writing all the user stories. That's not really discovery. You know, discovery right. would need to understand like what is the tech stack going to be, you know, what are, what, how is the user experience going to look like? You don't have to do deep dive. You don't have to do all the low fidelity, you know, mockups and, and wireframes, but still on a high level, you need to understand the customer journey mapping to some extent. That's you know? it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the key for our discoveries for our clients is to put them in a better position to make a decision. Yeah. Understand technical feasibility and then a roadmap. Yeah. And uh, let them take it from there. And if they want to hire us to, to do it or if they want to put that out to market, either way, uh, we hope that we have we have a good enough relationship at the end of that. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, we're the team to move forward. But, uh, you know, just authentically serving the client, putting them in a good position. This is all stuff you would do with the SaaS product. Yeah. Um, but getting them in a good position, I think too many um times they're they're led astray or they're given a ballpark too early or they're you know yeah. well you know all the different things that can go on so yeah um i do want to talk about you mentioned that you uh, along the way as you were growing your agency you bought two agencies so that that experience of buying an agency and instead of hiring people i think that's what two options people have usually you know either you stay keep hiring or you grow faster by, by, by buying agencies. So tell us about, you know, some of the experiences that you had during the process of buying other agencies, you did like two agencies. So that would be phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, you know, I had, uh, I had a mentor around um, years ago that he was an entrepreneur that, that bought and turned around companies and, uh, so he, he taught me a bunch over, over the years and I, I kind of had the knit, like the itch to, to try to, to acquire. And we had been trying to enter a market. Um, and it was really hard. It was like, man, like it was really difficult to enter that market. And so I started to look at, okay, maybe we can acquire a book of business in that market and a team in that market. And, um, you know, found someone that had been, you know, doing software for the last 15 years and, you know, it was kind of my age but had been kind of burnt, like ready to go, not burned out, so to speak, but he kind of always kept the business around 10 to 12 employees and, you know, kind of owned the job and, you know, didn't, you know, was just kind of ready to, you know, made a ton of money, didn't need, you know, to keep doing this. And so uh, that was the first acquisition. And, uh, you know, we learned a lot on that one. And uh, we, we got some great people, some great customers, um, but it was a huge learning curve on, on, a, on the acquisition front, uh, thinking that we knew everything, right? Like, hey, you can leave after the first day, you know, we'll be fine without you, no worries. And, you know, oh, we don't need to worry about their brand. We're just going to absorb the brand and use our brand. And uh, so we learned a lot. We lost a couple of customers right up front because it was, we didn't talk to them before the deal. We lost a few employees. Um, and then the second one, uh, which we're actually about 90 days into, we structured it way differently. Like, Hey, the, the old owner stay on, you know, be a team member, stay on for a few years. Um, and in that case, you know, it's an aging entrepreneur kind of looking for a, an exit strategy. So it's like, Hey, stay on, keep the customers happy, do, you know, keep your role and let's get you in a position where you're working on the stuff that you're passionate about. And, you know, in, involving the employees more, making sure we're really conscious about making sure they're in a good spot so they stay on on the team. And so, yeah, it's the 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 difference between doing the first deal and then learning and, and structuring the second one differently has just been tremendous. Um, but the second one's been, I mean, they're both great successes, I would say, and we've built a lot of great friendships and good customers out of it. But the second one has been less. Um, rocky <laughs> less less rocky of a road but um so when you so, went yeah. out to make the acquisition where you were focused on growth from a specific industry or a niche that you wanted to expand into so finding somebody who filled that niche specifically what would you say you know i'll use your word rocky what would you say was kind of one mistake that you made that you would want to be comfortable sharing to our listeners who are maybe exploring acquisitions themselves that you're like, yeah, yeah, don't do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the owners that are going to be listening to this. So the first, <laughs> so which I'm great friends with both of them. All right. So the first deal, 
um, I was so um, emotionally wrapped up in the deal. Like you just want to do the deal. Right. Yeah. Um, that I made too many concessions. Um, you know, the, the owner didn't, didn't want, um, you know, he didn't want to spook his employees. Right. So I get it. I, I totally get it from being, having sold companies and buying, I totally understand it. You know, you don't want the buyer to talk to the customers. You don't want, cause what if the deal falls through, right? Cause nothing is certain. Like you have yep. a letter of intent executed, everything can be perfect, but yeah. then something can come up last minute. So it's like, you don't want to introduce this buyer to your customers. You don't want to introduce them to your employees. Cause what if it doesn't go through? And now you just think of how cars on the table. That's, oh my gosh. Right. You can't, you can't undo some of that. So on that first deal, I was like, okay, yep. I, yep. You don't want me to talk to customers. It's fine. No worries. We won't don't want to talk to the employees. Fine. That's okay. Um, you know, and then what happens is you get a couple customers that were like, Hey, you know, I don't know, you know, if you change an ownership. I don't know. Maybe it's time we just take a little break. It's like, Oh man, like if, like that, if I would have been able to talk to that customer, which we all, we got all the customers back, but, uh, you know, just having that, it got, you know, customers freaked out a little new ownership. Our guy, we've known our guy for 10 years and now he's going to leave. I don't know. Like, yeah, maybe we'll let's reassess. Uh, the second deal, you know, we started working together on some customers together. We had the conversation with our customers. What do you think? We're working together. How, how's everything going? You know, we're thinking about a merger. What do you guys think? Oh, it sounds like a great idea. We've got all those other capabilities and we'd love to take you up on that stuff. So, you know, we met with the employees and we talked to them about it. And so, you know, the first one was, was kind of, you know, more closed. And then the, the second one was a lot more open and, and, um, but that takes the right kind of team members and stuff too. But yeah, so that's kind of the, the example and I get it. Um, and so is there a happy medium in there? Boy, is it, it's tough because well, it's hard for, to your point, you know, like what if you say something or do something and the thing kind of, right. That's, that's a technical term. My biggest <laughs> yeah, <concern> yeah. <laughs> how do you spell my, that? My biggest concern is usually how but if i was to buy a company you know my biggest concern would be how would i keep the employees because we are buying company to grow employees are the asset we want to buy them because we want to grow faster and to grow faster we need team and the team if they start leaving i don't know if i mean i we haven't really explored the idea of buying yet but um, the question that comes to my mind is how would i make sure that the employees stay because when the you know leadership changes, as you said, like people start freaking out and they feel what will happen to me, my job and my role, because I'm going to merge with other team members. And you know, um, so did you guys do any in the second one? Um, did you guys do anything differently about keeping the employees? Or like I know the owners usually stay for three or four years, like or I know three years is usually a standard. I have heard, but um, I don't know. What what do you do about employees? Yeah, I mean, so you know, obviously, the first thing we look at when we acquire a firm is: is there any wage compression? Does anybody is anybody underpaid to the market? Let's fix that, right? So when we're when we're analyzing the financials of a deal, um, you know, we're not using their current financials when we're kind of doing the the valuation. We're we're adjusting for some of that. So. Um, you know, you want to look at, is it, does anybody deserve a raise? Does anybody need to be compensated? And then, you know, also what kind of retention bonuses, right? Is, can we give a retention bonus six months from now, a year from now? Um, and so that's, that's always been, um, at least in this last deal, we looked at retention bonuses to make sure the teams were, you know, committed. And then I think it's about having the relationship. Um, you know, I try to meet with every single person on the team um, every quarter and that, you know, during COVID, I realized, like, man, I haven't talked to that person in a year. And they're on the team, you know, so, you know, it wasn't until just a few months ago, it was like, I need to make sure I'm talking to every single person. Um, and, you know, I think when it comes to an acquisition, it's checking in with those people often. How's it going? You know, what do you learn? You know, what are you running into? Um, and just making sure that they feel an open channel to, to talk and communicate their needs. Um, seems to be working. It's, um, you haven't used the word, but I'll give it to you. It's transparency. So it's a, it's a really, 
you know, in all of my roles, regardless of its client side, internal or agency side, the idea of, you know, trans lack of transparency breeds paranoia. And so what you're talking about is, you know, sharing what you can share, letting people ask questions and being transparent about what you can't answer either, you know, and saying, look, we're in the middle of something as a business. You got to trust me a little bit to know that it's going to be a good thing, but I can't tell you that right now. So it's, it sounds like that may have been a little bit of a communication shift. And again, every deal is different. One isn't better than the other, but even as you reorg teams within organizations, it's hard. Or bringing a new team member who might be middle management, it's hard. You know, that's one of the hardest tires in a lot of places. So Let's um let's talk a little bit about COVID and kind of how you guys tackled that as an organization and how you shifted resources and how you kept kept folks motivated. I know we're I don't want to call it on the tail end, but like whatever this new world looks like on the other side of the drama. Um, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Yeah. How did you guys kind of kind of uh float through that? Maybe float's not the right word there, but Weather the yeah. storm of COVID. How's that one? That one's a good, that's a better. Were you always on site or were you remote? And how did, let, let's start with that. Yeah, as a specific a good, question. yeah, that's a good question. So I've always, you know, we always had a kind of an open office like mentality. We never cared how often someone was in. It was like, it's all about productivity. We don't want someone to spend an hour in the car driving somewhere just to sit at a desk and then go home and spend another hour. Like I'd rather you just stay home and, and get more productivity out of you. So we always kind of had that flexible environment, work from home, work from the office. You know, we want to see your face. Uh, so when COVID happened, it wasn't like a big shock or anything. Everyone just kind of didn't come in the office. Um, you know, we changed some things around. You know, we we started to hire more people that weren't necessarily in our geographical region because it was, it was like, well, this is going to, you know, kind of made us less worried about local geographic Um proximity for our, our workforce so we, we hired some people spread out you know we started doing things like you know i think every wednesday we have like a 15 minute coffee chat so it's like a zoom chat and then you know a, a happy hour chat where people can just hop on and then see each other play games and things of that nature so just trying to be a little more aware of that um you know more all hands calls checking in on people um I'm just glad it's getting, it's getting over with. So, uh, you know, getting more people back engaged is huge. Now it's just trying to break out of that. Like, especially from a sales standpoint, like we kind of forget now, like we're so quick to just set up another zoom call where it's like, wait, this person's in the same town. Like (laughs) I should just drive over there. But like, we all default to like setting up a call or not even calling anymore. It's like, you can't just pick up the phone. Now you got to schedule something. So it's just kind of, now it's, you know, we did fine. We grew a lot. Um, you know, we hit the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing private companies during COVID. Um, so I think we, we managed pretty well. Um, but now I think it's, it's trying to break back out of it and say, man, I haven't seen so-and-so in 18 months. Like, I wonder if we, and you don't want to ask everyone to come back at once. Cause you know, you want to be, you know, you want to be aware of everyone's got their own situation and you don't know, if they're living with an elderly parent or, you know, so you don't want to like force people to come back, but you still want to see everybody. And so uh, that's kind of be kind of the weird navigating that right now. I don't know if you guys are experiencing any of those kind of. I mean, the hybrid model is an interesting animal because there's something about being in the space together and making it work. Those who choose not to, I think it's a, it's the struggle is real when we talk about, you know, the struggle was real when everyone was working from home, but at least you're in the same boat trying to figure out right. how to paddle in one direction. In this case, you know, with more, like you said, you're hiring with more global approach to teams and where you're hiring and who you're working with. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard, how do you keep the connections? How do you keep the culture going? Varun, I know you have lots of thoughts on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yes. Because we, um, well, so our company, so we have about 400 employees. So with people of that, so the team of that size, there are many cultures, you know, many teams within bigger organizations. Some teams are really pretty happy with, they've always been, you know, focused on 
productivity and they wanted to just get the work done while other people, especially the design team, creative people, they want to be in the room and brainstorm ideas on the white paper, whiteboard and all that. So we are in a mix of hybrid approach where we are going to continue. I mean, COVID has, so we always wanted to have this remote flexibility, but you know, we never you know, did that because I don't know why, because most of the people did not want to, I guess. But COVID has forced us, and we have seen this is this has started. This has worked because last two years have been phenomenal years for us as well. Um, team has done amazing job, you know, um, and there was no productivity loss. So now everybody is open, and they love to work from their home with their families, with their kids, and they spend more time. And um, so I think that is what I'm hearing from other agencies as well. Like people are going to continue this road, um, and the biggest benefit that we have heard and we have seen ourselves is allowing us to go and hire people outside our own cities and towns where mm -hmm. our offices are. Yeah, Earlier, fine. we wouldn't have even thought of doing that. But now, like last year's we have done, that's what, that's all we did. Like we kept hiring, but you know, it doesn't matter where they are. So that has opened up the gates for, uh, for us to, acquire talent from you know various parts of the world so that is the biggest advantage and takeaway for me you know that COVID has done for us how have you kept the team connected you know this is always a I know you were talking a little bit about stand-ups and things like that is this a nut that you've cracked like how do you keep people chatting yeah I mean we have a you know we have a pretty active slack environment uh, a lot of a lot of um, really cool channels in there for whether it's about, you know, I think we have a pets and plants channel in there. Um, you know, family and kids. I mean, so we, we try to, you know, engage people that way. And that seems to be really good. We do a weekly newsletter, um, for the whole company that, you know, we have department heads kind of doing a, a slide. Um, you know, we have some, some updates on key initiatives and then we allow, um, where we have one person each week, they get to write whatever they want to the whole company. Uh, and everyone has to do it. Uh, you get your week and you can write about anything. And that's been really cool. Uh, you know, I love seeing that. Uh, and so people have chosen all sorts of things to write about, but it's like their, their voice. Um, you know, we do our all company calls. Um, you know, we just had one last week and I prompted the team with, with two questions, which was basically, you know, what questions do you have for the company um, or myself uh, to answer to everybody? And then, you know, what do you want to share with everybody? And so it's like, you got, okay, ask any question you want. It's anonymous. I'll answer it to the whole company um, no matter what it is. And then, you know, what is something you want to share? And I think just letting people know that they actually have a voice and when they want to be heard, um, I think that's the, I mean, that's, what's working for us. Um, and then I'm, I'm also trying to now meet with every employee every quarter. Um, even if it's 15, 20 minutes, just checking in, um, how's it going? Um, you gotta be really intentional about the communication stuff and it's really easy to just brush it off and just go heads down. Um, so you just gotta have discipline and, and do it. And I think that seems to be working for us. It's not easy. No, that's, that's good advice. I think the end, what you said was the end, being intentional about it makes a big difference, even in smaller organizations or larger organizations, just being seen and being heard. It's good. Yeah. And, and manager one-on-ones, right? Um, we do weekly one-on-ones. Every manager has to have a one-on-one -on -one with their team members each week. Um, and that's easy too to kind of brush off, but it's important. True. I want to, unless Varun, you got another question. Otherwise, I'm going to shift again. Oh, All right. So I want to talk a little bit about offshoring and outsourcing. Um, you guys have done it. What was your take? What was your experience? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. My first experience was a long time ago, 15 years. I ran out of money on a startup. Had to find a cost-effective way to pull a project across the finish line. And I found a team in India to help me do it. And it was, I don't know, I loved the experience, right? Like I could, I could code at that point, I coded, I could code all day. 
I got stuck on a few things that were hanging me up. I could hand that off before I went to sleep. I could wake up and it would be done, right? It was like, oh my gosh, the thing I was held up on all day is no longer a blocker, you know? And so I just loved it. Like I just, I just thought it was so cool to be able, and I'm, I love efficiency stuff, right? So just being able to make progress 24 seven, I think was just, I don't know, I just loved it and built some great relationships with the team over there. Um, and so I, I continued to do that for a long time. And, uh, you know, clients, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would kind of not bring it up, kind of trying to hide it, you know, a little bit. Um, and then it got to a point where it was like, these team members were so important. Like I felt like I was doing a disservice if I did not just bring it up and make sure clients knew, like, cause I'd hear, you know, people all the time, like saying that it was, you know, you're taking jobs away from, you know, Americans and stuff. And at Spark, you know, we've grown tremendously and we've created so many jobs in the U S because we've created jobs offshore as well. And so it's like, we wouldn't have done any of this stuff if we didn't have a balance. Um, and so anyway, so we, we were proud to have a team in India, um, our team members over there and, uh, we know them, we know them. we're actually sending some, some folks over there to, to see them as well. And are going to look at finding ways to bring them over here to, to meet the teams. Um, so yeah, so we wear it as a badge of honor. We love it. Uh, we've got a great culture um of offshore and onshore teams and and depending on the client we'll, we'll find the right mix um it allows us to be more responsive right so we had a call like a daily with a client today we found a bug okay well guess what the u.s team is going to work on it for a few hours and then our team in india is going to pick it up um, we're probably going to have an answer for them in the morning uh that would typically take two days and if it was all onshore so i don't know we like it it works for us uh, our clients, you know, I was with a client the other day that brought up one of our team members by name and just said how much she enjoyed working with them and or enjoys working with them. And so, well, you, you know, you we bring our, bring them to the client meetings and everything. So we don't, we don't throw it, we don't throw the work over a wall and hope it gets done. I mean, they're in the trenches with us and it works great for us. You can't be that lucky. There must be something you have done, right? Something you must have, um, done right to made that happen to build that relationship and the the way you have worked with the offshore teams or were you were you lucky like you know what, what's the secret of working with the offshore because i mean people oh, have mixed opinions right people have mixed experiences so um, i would like to know if there are any learnings that you had for others who may want to try that model to see what can they do so that they don't have to burn, um, you know, their money with, with, yeah. with this concept. Oh yeah. I mean, everyone has their stories, right. And it nine times out of 10, when you ask about it, it's like, they use the word like, Oh, well, I assumed the developers knew this or, you know, Oh, I, I didn't know that they were going to be on vacation. You know, you know, they had a holiday for, that week or those few days, or it's like, you know, all these things that if you had a, if you had a relationship and you were transparent with your needs, um, that's typically the, the case is, you know, they, they see it as like, uh, you know, I'm going to throw this work over the fence and I'm going to, I'm going to be kind of vague because it's going to take too much time for me to outline all the details and all the requirements and actually spend time on a call and go through all these details. I'm just going to write up this email, maybe do a video and shoot it over the fence. And then I'll be disappointed when it comes back and it's not what I expected. That's typically what people do. Um, and, you know, so what we've done with that team, I mean, just being super transparent, Hey, here's how we work. Here's, you know, here's what's expected. Um, and it's like all those difficult conversations you don't want to have when you're hiring somebody because you don't want to like lose that applicant. Like we just say it, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't, I think doing it just like you were hiring someone that you're going to sit next to. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, I think most people think about the, the technical skills we want to, you know, we do the same type of personality assessments we would do. We want to learn about, you know, what's their family like? What do you do for fun? You know, where do you want to be in five years? What does success look like? I mean, we're, we hire that way. We want to know these, these individuals and they're going to be team members versus 
okay, oh, I need a PHP developer. Okay, okay, top 10% and upward. Yeah, let's just give it to this person and they're gonna, and then all of a sudden you're not happy. It's like, that's yeah. that's the approach we've taken. I don't, what about you? I mean, I'm, everyone has stories, right? <laughs> Horror stories of. Yeah, yeah. So, well, our, our team is pretty much consist of offshoring, right? We, we work with, you know, our team is overseas. That's our business model. So we, um, I, I am more of a receiving end of usually the stories that you would have heard because we are the one who bring the people to the agencies. Um, and the, the stories that I hear is mostly um, people, the reason why people uh, are afraid to go offshore is, you know, there's usually the communication gap and the transparency because people don't want to accept mistakes. They don't want to say no. Those are some of the common areas that we've heard. And that's what, you know, um, people, I mean, in this culture don't like. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. I mean, yes or no. I mean, you can do it or you can't do it if you understood or you did not understand. Yeah. So that's hard to train. Um, and uh, I think that, that that has caused the maximum friction between uh, people um, you know, here and there. So, but to your point, it's if you're building the human relationship first, then all of these things will become less meaningful. I mean, I would say not less meaningful, but uh, it becomes easier for them to understand and work with you. People right. don't think like that, right? People don't think, they look at them as a resource. They look at them as, right. you know, Yes, it's a developer. I need 40 hours. So here's a task, do it. But when you make that connection with them, then you make them feel part of your own team, your own culture, which takes time. It cannot happen overnight. Takes because time. For them, right. it, for them it's, it's, they are themselves looking at, they are looking at themselves as a resource for, for the clients over here, right? So you need to, tell them you need to make them understand and realize that we are going to work together for a long time. So we want to, you know, make sure that we know you and you know us align the expectations. Uh, that's what we try to do. Like whenever we engage with the customers, like we would like to know them. I mean, we'd like them to engage and communicate with the, with our team before uh, they hire us because that's the key. Like that's they, they, they need to know how right. we talk, how our, accent is how how good their english is um all of these little things matters right that's what um you know um yeah that, that's what that, that makes them feel comfortable or not comfortable but at least they would know yeah i mean that's what we do in our i mean typically when you're trying to find a resource you're going to find the first person that checks the boxes and you're just going to say yes versus like, okay, no, we're going to hire somebody. We want to find the right partner. We're going to interview and you're going to interview and you're going to, like you said, yeah, you're going to get some people that, yeah, I just didn't really feel a connection. Um, but you just keep going. Cause you're, you know, versus, yeah, like you could hire somebody in a matter of minutes. Like right now, if we needed to hire a dev, we could probably find in the next couple hours, if yeah. you want to find the right dev, it's going to take you a few weeks. And you're going to interview a lot of people. Um, but when you find it, it's like, wow, this person is going to be great. They're going to be a great member of the team. And, um, yeah. I think it's just the intention. Yeah. And like you said, it's the intention behind it. Do you need someone to fix an immediate problem right now? Or do you need to find somebody who's going to be with you and plan for growth? And, you know, how do you want to scale from that yep. particular yep. piece of the business? So cool. Well, I have, have one, one last question for you. Um, unless Varun, you got anything else, I'm going to ask yeah. our, yeah. all right. So what is exciting you about the future? That could be the industry and business. What do you, what's kind of wrapped up in your imagination right now? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the future that, that what gets me excited, I think is, is the speed and the different technologies that that are happening in, in that smaller companies. Like we like to play with more smaller, medium-sized projects. Um, and the fact that these companies now have access to the technology that built like, you know, Domino's pizza tracker and Amazon and all this stuff that you can now plug into 
through you know APIs and different microservices to help clients that have smaller organizations have the same type of technology. I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, we work with clients, manufacturing clients that want to have you know real time order tracking, and we work with construction firms that want to you know have daily data from their job sites and um, all stuff that would have been impossible five or ten years ago, or just not impossible, but just not attainable from a financial standpoint for smaller, uh, medium-sized firms. So I think what's cool is, is, is that ability. I know it's not like the awesome, like, you know, uh, blockchain and all this kind of stuff, but I just think the access to some of this technology to firms that was typically unattainable, that's pretty exciting. Um, because, you know, I'm a champion for the small, medium-sized businesses. And so, seeing that they have a nice pathway here to level up, I think is pretty cool. I think it's, I think that's the heart of what you're trying to say is like a pathway to level up, you know, regardless of, of some of those technologies are cool. Those people did start small, you know, the order tracking being a more consumable, I mean, that benefits everybody, does it not? <laughs> Especially with the conversation we had earlier in this chat around the, the hybrid model of work, the hybrid model of living. Yeah. Um, feel like that could be a whole nother episode about retail and consumption models and how people consume and expectations and, you know, what Amazon has done to all of us and our, why isn't it here? How come it's taking a week to get delivered? <laughs> yeah, so, I know. Right. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Bob. Really appreciated the conversation. Um, so folks looking to connect with you can find you on LinkedIn under your name, your company website, it's sparkbusinessworksplural.com um, and your company LinkedIn profile as well. So uh, thank you so much. That's it, everyone. If you learned something today or left, tell somebody about this podcast. See you all next time. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.